Hey, I want to say Merry Christmas to you as well. I just trust you have a wonderful, wonderful Christ-filled Christmas. And uh, I'm really thankful to be able to speak to you today along the Christmas theme. As we, uh, we have been studying over the last uh, several weeks, the real God. I've loved that study that, uh, the God, that God has led our pastor in uh, studying about the real God. Not the God that you imagine, not the God that others have created, but the real God as defined in the Word of God. And I've just heard so many positive reactions from you in terms of how that's uh, impacted your life. As you not only talked, talked about it on Sundays, but throughout the week as this was integrated into uh, so many aspects of our church. So I love that we've been able to draw focus upon the real God. Now, the, the amazing part is, is as God has led our pastor again, I just love to watch what God is doing in our pastor Aaron. And now he's saying that he senses that God would have us study the book of uh, Matthew. That the book of Matthew gives us an up-close and personal a study of the life of Jesus, God. In fact, Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3, all those uh, couple of verses there, talks about um, that God in the past spoke in many different ways, but now in this time, he has spoken to us clearly through his Son. Uh, uh, John says it this way, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God. And then later on it says, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. Glory is the only begotten Son of God, full of grace and truth. So this is an opportunity as we study Matthew to see God up close and personal. Now this book particularly is an interesting book because it's a transitional book. If we look back into history from the fall of man In Genesis, the first three chapters there, we see that there was a promise that was given. We'll look at that in a moment. A promise was given that from the seed of the woman would be born someone who would free man up from his bondage of sin. That was reiterated later on in uh, Genesis when the calling of Abraham took place. And the promise was given that through his seed, there would be one who was born that would bless not only the Jewish people, but all the people of the world. And then we go on about uh, a thousand years later after that, uh, King David is on the throne of Israel. And then it talks about that his kingdom will never, ever depart. It will be forever and ever. And that there will be one who will come and sit upon that throne Now, this again is speaking of Jesus. All these references in Genesis and also in Samuel, where it's made reference to David, really speak of Jesus and the anticipation of that. So in the book of Matthew, we really see a twofold theme that will run throughout the book, and that is the credentials of the king, and not only the credentials of the king, but the conduct of of the king and his teaching and his character. All of that flows through to say one primary thing, that he is really king of kings and lord of lords, and he is sovereign over all. But a 
additional theme that runs through the book of Matthew. And by the way, we see that theme uh, running throughout the book. Uh, that secondary theme as well is uh, the redemption that he has for mankind, that he's going to bring us this salvation. So we see then from the very first chapter here, the credentials that are defined. And then later on, we see his character defined because he's challenged by Satan to uh, tempt him so that he could take him off course from the mission that he was on to bring salvation to us. We see after that some amazing teaching because if he is king, and I know there are some people that look at the book of Matthew and say it's only for Jewish people. I disagree with that. Certainly he is king of the Jews, but he's our king as well. For there are only three things that are necessary in order to have a kingdom. That is a sovereign God, one who is sovereign over all, a means by which to regulate those subjects, that is through the teachings and the principles of the Word of God, and then you have to have subjects, and we become the children of God. So we are really participating in the kingdom of God, not in its fullest expression, but certainly talking about the kingdom of God. So we see then in the book of Matthew, not only are there credentials given to us, but his character is proven as he's tested by Satan and is not, doesn't yield to that temptation. We see the teaching that is given to us in his first major discourse, which is the Sermon on the Mount, an amazing teaching that cuts across the cultural thinking of the day and the religious thinking of the day and gives us instruction on how we should live. We see this king calling forth those who will represent his kingdom or his way, and those are the disciples. He challenges and he uh, equips them and then sends them out. And, and then after this, we see in the book of Matthew a level of resistance that begins to take place. Because some of the things that Jesus is teaching cuts across the Jewish traditions of the time not true Jews, because they expected and anticipated the coming Messiah. But those who were losing their power and influence began to be jealous by that. And so they start, started an opposition to Jesus. And in that opposition, it turned to outright rebellion in the sense that they wanted Jesus killed. We see that that really culminates in a false trial and lies that are given there. And he's crucified. But the crucifixion doesn't solve the problem because after the crucifixion and his death comes the resurrection and also comes the promise that this king will come again. Even as defined in the book of Acts when the angel says uh, uh, to those who are surrounded as Jesus is ascending, he said, why do you stand here gazing? This same Jesus will come in like manner. So there is that full anticipation of the coming again of the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Now, what I've just done is I just taught you the book of Matthew. Let's close in a word of prayer, shall we? <clears throat> now, what I've taught you in about three minutes there, we're going to unfold over the next several months. We don't know how long it's going to take us, but it's going to be a fun journey because we get up close and personal with Jesus. So, this first chapter, and um, you may think the first part of this chapter, you love to come to that section when you're reading through the Bible because you kind of go fast it. A lot of words, a lot of words, a lot of words, a lot of words. Oh, now they came about the birth of Jesus in this fashion. I understand that, but who are all these people? 
It's really important to understand that for the Jewish people, and really I don't think only for the Jewish people, but I think for a lot of us, that um, credentials are important. You know, who are you? Where did you come from? What family do you represent? And this was particularly true for the Jewish people because they anticipated that through the Jewish line would come one who would be their king, who would bless the world. Now, they didn't embrace that part as fully as they should have, but that's really the truth of what they anticipated. Now, the test is, is this one who is now being announced here, Jesus Christ, is he truly the Messiah? Is he truly the promised one? Now, the reason I raise that question is because historically, for 4,000 years, And even in the anticipation, right after the fall of man, they named their children with that anticipation, maybe this is the promised one. But there had been many over those 4,000 years that had announced that they were the Messiah. Anybody can say that they're the Messiah, but do you have the credentials? Do you have the character? Do you have the power? Uh, Do you have all that is necessary to fulfill all the prophetic declarations that are given. What we find in this one called Jesus is that he fully embraces all of the prophetic declarations, all of the character, all of the teaching, all of the truth that in fact, not only does he say that he's the Messiah, but he proves that he's the Messiah. Now that's important to understand because if we don't embrace that, then we have no understanding of what our salvation is. And we have no means to assure the fact that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, and our Redeemer. So this is the study that we're going to go on in this process, and we see this genealogy. The credentials of the king is what we look at first. It's kind of an unusual announcement, and I'll say that in a minute. Uh, But um, I I can't imagine that Jan and I would have announced the birth of our daughter, Kimberly, in this fashion. Edwin and Elizabeth Jones, the father of John and Charlotte Weir Jones, gave birth to Douglas Jones, who married Phyllis Jones, who gave birth to Mike Jones, and Mike Jones, who was married to Jan Jones, want to announce the birth of our daughter, Kimberly. You'd think, are you nuts? I mean, that, that is crazy. I, I've never in all my life seen that kind of announcement. And yet, this is what we find here. And I'm asking this question, and I think about this. For 4,000 years, they had anticipated this very event, the birth of a Savior. This, this had been anticipated Now, with all of the media that we have today, all the technology that we have today, don't you think we could do a better job of announcing this in this fashion to tell how great this is? I mean, this is the pivotal point, in addition to his crucifixion, this is the pivotal point of all of history. This is not only what was anticipated, it's what we point back to. We're still celebrating the birth of Jesus. We're still celebrating his life. This is the pivotal point. Why in the world would they announce it in this fashion? It's because of that which I've already said. 
Genealogies were important to the Jewish people. In fact, even to be a priest, a high priest, you had to, you had to be able to trace your genealogy back to Aaron, or otherwise you couldn't be high priest. Because all of the promises are wrapped around the Jewish people in regards to this seed that would come, then it was important to follow through with this whole genealogy to prove that this indeed is the rightful one who is born of proper order here. Now, it's interesting to observe because actually any one of these that we could stop at any point in the genealogy of Jesus and say, hey, they're in that line. But it's more than just being in the line of the genealogy here. You also have to have the additional credentials, as I've already mentioned, of character, of deity, of purity, of holiness, of godliness. You had to be God. And these all fell short of that until we get to this one finally, Jesus. Now, it's interesting then how Matthew introduces this genealogy. He does so, look at me, look with me in uh, verse 2, no, actually verse 1, the record of the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, and then he says two things, the son of David and the son of Abraham. And then he begins to list these in greater detail. Why would he say, as highlighted here, the son of David and the son of Abraham? Well, I want you to understand that these both have significance to us and to the Jewish people. And we'll see that. Let's first of all turn to Genesis chapter 12. In Genesis 12, and really, when you, if you go to, um, uh, what are you going to have, Tom? Is that... Uh, Precepts? Or no, not precepts. Uh, perspective? What is it? Perspective. Yeah, whatever. Not only is my vision going, my hearing's going, but that whatever that said there, that's what's going to happen. But it talks. It really will go back to this passage here in Genesis chapter twelve because it is the unfolding of the promise of God. Now look at with verse one. Now the Lord said to Abram, not yet called Abraham, just Abram. He was called out. He was really a an insignificant person until God called him to be father of this nation. Go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land which I will show you. I, this is particularly important because the I will should be emphasized there. And I will, that is God speaking here, make you a great nation. I will bless you. This is of God in all of this. And make your name great. So you shall be a blessing, and I will bless those who bless you. And the one who curses you, I will curse. And you and all of the families of the earth will be blessed. That latter part of that extends beyond the Jewish family to the very objective that God had even in calling the Jewish people, because what he wanted to do in addition to that was to have the Jewish people modeling what it means to have a theocracy, a relationship with God, to the Gentile people as well. He wants all the families. And here is the promise that all of the families will be blessed. So in Matthew, if this is really not who Jesus is, there is no guarantee of blessing in that. Absolutely necessary to have this literally fulfilled. Now, the second aspect, oh, and by the way, that's in keeping with what was said 
2,000 years earlier, and that is in Genesis 3, after the fall of man, we find this given to us in Genesis 3 and in verse 16. Uh, that's right. In verse 15, it says, And I will put, speaking of Satan and the judgment upon Satan, this is what he says, And I will put enmity between you and the woman. Now, what is enmity? That is a, a, a hatred, a conflict, a battle. He said, I'm going to create a battle here, and it will be between you, that is Satan, and the woman. And the woman then is not just women, but all of mankind that will proceed from this union here of Adam and Eve. Between you and the woman, or humanity, and between your seed and her seed. Now it's talking about the promise here that through the woman, and in the early part here, even as they named their children, it was the anticipation, this is the promised one, this is the promised one, this is the promised one. And here's what he says will happen. He shall bruise you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel. That is, this one that will be born that it will be the objective of Satan to war against, as we now know, Jesus, and he will do some damage there. But a wound on the heel is nothing compared to a wound in the head. So what he's saying is, is that this seed will ultimately defeat the activities of Satan in the work of humanity. So it's really important to see that this promise, and I love this, I love this about Matthew 1, that all of the promises that God has given starting there in Genesis and going now to Genesis chapter 12 and coming all the way now 4,000 years from the time of Genesis now to Jesus, and and God never ever forgot his promise that he was going to give a deliverer to mankind. He was going to give a savior to mankind, and so we see it. Now, the same can be said of David because it is uh, God who says of, um, of David in, you'll, you can look at this, time doesn't lend itself, but in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 12 to 16, God declares of the throne of David, there will be no end. And that means there is the promise of one who would sit upon the Davidic throne again and would rule. Now, that's why even in the early part of the disciples' ministry, they anticipated this king, like and in the spirit of David of old, that they would be triumphant and the nation of Israel would become glorious as it was at one time. And so that's why uh, Peter, (coughs) when... The Lord talked about building his church in, in Matthew chapter 16. And, and Peter uh, said, uh, as, as Jesus talked about, he had to go up to Jerusalem and to suffer from the hands of the priests and the, and the Pharisees and, that he, and the scribes, and he would be crucified and he would die. And, and he's coming back, but that was all going to happen. Peter said, God forbid it, Lord, this shall never happen. You're talking about role reversals there. Let's understand who the king is here. Let's understand who the Lord is. And Peter said that. Why did he say that? Because he had the full anticipation that on the throne of David would be this mighty warrior who would conquer the enemy surrounding, overthrowing all of those, resurrect then Israel in his glorious state, 
and there would be uh, Israel ruling as it was. What they didn't understand is, is that from the cradle had to be the cross, and from the cross, the crown. And they sidestepped the cross. And to sidestep the cross is to remove is to uh, remove the opportunity for our redemption as defined by Abraham and, and David. Now listen very carefully then. He's telling us that there are two themes from the promises that run concurrently. What, what are these two themes? From the promise to Abraham, he's telling them, I'm going to bless the people of the world. And of course, we understand that to be redemption. We're not talking about horizontal material wealth here. We're talking about a a spiritual transformation. That's the promise. We're going to see as Matthew continues to unfold, that's his objective. But in addition to that, we see the absolute authority of God. The ultimate authority in the mind that is in a kingship, in the mind of the Jewish people, was the rule of David a mighty ruler. And now he's saying, the promise is another mighty ruler, greater than David, will rule supremely. Aren't you glad that the one who is almighty, all-powerful, all-controlling, is one who wants to bless us? I'd be scared to death otherwise, wouldn't you? All right. So we see then that if Jesus is going to be who he says he is, he's got to fulfill these things or he is not the Messiah. All of this unfolds. So we see from the credentials, from the fulfillment of those two covenant promises, it takes place. But there's something else that has to take place here because if he is born in this process of a father from a father to a father to a father, and he's born in that chain of events there that takes place, then he would be born with a sin nature, and he would be in as much need of a Savior as we are. So somehow, if he's going to be this promised one, there's going to have to be a protection of his divine purity. And we see that unfolding, and it's in a very quick verse in the genealogy there, because it had started there in verse 3, Judah was the father of Perez, and Ram, verse 4, Ram was the father, Samuel was the father, Jesse was the father, David, and then we get down to verse 16, Jacob, a different Jacob here, Jacob was the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, by whom Jesus was born. It doesn't say that Joseph is the father of Jesus and through whom Jesus is born, who is called the Messiah. Now, this point is so crucial that he repeats it here in verse 20. But when he had considered the following, the angel, the Lord appeared to him in a dream saying, Joseph's Son of David, isn't it interesting, the association back to son of David? Do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the child who has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. And then it goes on, and it talks about her virginity, even in verse 25, and protecting verse 24. So what are we saying here then? 
that what, what is happening here is that Mary is a vessel through whom God gains his humanity, but it has always been understood that the sin nature is passed on through the seed of the man. This is clearly defined in the word. So now this is one who is interrupted, even though the credentials are there to be born, it is now interrupted because there has to be this divine intervention to keep the purity of the one. Now you say, well, Mike, why do you say that? Because there has to be a perfect sacrifice that is made for our redemption. You say, why do you say that? Even if we go back to the Jewish people in the Old Testament there, and we see that um, uh, when they were getting delivered out of Egypt, that there was a protection that was given to all of those Jewish people who were obedient to God by the sacrifice of a lamb. And that lamb's blood was placed upon the door, on, on the entrance to the, uh, the doorway entrance. And when death's angel came through, the blood protected them. When we read then in John's account of the gospel of Jesus Christ, he says, when he sees Jesus coming at a distance, he said, the words that he say are very crucial there. Behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. Isn't that, isn't that interesting? The lamb means, what would he be making reference? Why would he use the word lamb? The lamb immediately in, the, in, in all people's mind would go back to that time in Egypt and the deliverance it would be and the protection. We can see it even more clearly defined as we see in, um, in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Look at this. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, talking about our need for redemption and how it's all going to come about. He says, uh, talks about us being ambassadors in verse 20. Therefore, we are ambassadors of God as though God were making an appeal through us. We beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. How are we reconciled? He made him, reference to Jesus, he made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf. So that with the end result, we might become the righteousness of God in him. It is the only way. Or as uh, Acts records for us, there is no other name given among men whereby we shall be saved. Only the name of Jesus. That is the only means to do that. Now, if he is a sinner as we are, then he's in need as as much in need of a Savior as we are. So what we find then in this first section of Matthew is the fulfillment of of the credentials of the king, not only from covenant fulfillment, not only from the genealogical fulfillment, but also from the purity whereby it is maintained uh, so that he could be our savior. Which then leads us to the second aspect of the sub-theme that runs through Matthew, and that is the, um, his purpose. His purpose is to bring us salvation. And here we see it. It's the heart of the Savior. Now, that's really redefined for us four ways here. First of all, it's defined for us in the very title of the book. Here we have it, Matthew. Matthew actually means gift of God. Now, that was an interesting uh, name to give a person who in the ninth chapter of Matthew, and you can turn there with me because I want to read this to you, in Matthew chapter 9, we find that there was this Matthew that we're talking about that wrote this book, 
uh, under the inspiration of the Spirit of God, who's writing this book. Well, Matthew was a tax collector. He was a tax collector, a Jewish man who was a tax collector for the Roman government that was oppressive to the Jewish people. He would take money from the Jewish people and give it to the Roman government. He was, of all positions that you could possibly serve in at that time, to be that kind of uh, um, a collector of, of taxes is to be despised by the Jewish people. They hated him. Now, again, we're running along this theme of what does it mean about salvation. Here we find it. Verse 9, as Jesus went on from there, he saw a man called Matthew, the same one who penned this letter, sitting in the, the tax collector's booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he got up and followed him. I believe that Matthew knew in the depths of his soul that which we will later find out in the teaching of Jesus and the first major thing that he says in his first major discourse, the Sermon on the Mount. He said, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Those who have recognized the poverty of their own soul. I don't think there was anyone lower than Matthew in the whole nation of Israel. Hated by the Jews, probably didn't like himself. He didn't, his own, in fact, we see it unfold for us. Then it happened, verse 10, then it happened that as Jesus was reclining at the table in the house, beholding, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were dining with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, why is your teacher eating with the tax collectors and sinners? This doesn't make sense. But when Jesus heard this, he said, it is not those who are healthy who need a physician, but those who are sick. But go and learn what it means. I desire compassion and not sacrifice. For I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Now, of course, that's a play on the word, the self-righteous, one who thought that they were right. So here we find then the very heart of our Savior having compassion upon the least in the kingdom, uh, in, in the nation of Israel at this time. And Matthew, life was changed, as you can well imagine. So then we already, by the very title, we find this taking place. But then in addition to that, we see sinners in the genealogy of Jesus. This is, this is amazing. I, I don't know who's in your genealogy. I know that, and I've been curious about that recently, just uh, about my own genealogy, and I, I've traced um, on my dad's side clear back to Scotland. And... Um, I don't know all of those rascals that were back there, but I do know some of them. And, and some of them I really want to tell you about. And others, hmm, let's just sweep under the rug. Do you have anybody in yours? Or maybe you are the one. <laughs> You're the one that says, hey, man, if God can save him, anybody can get saved. So here's what we have in the genealogy of Jesus. Starts out in verse 3, Judah, the son of Jacob, who begot... Perez and Zerah, through incest with his daughter-in-law Tamar. What is he doing in the genealogy of Jesus? You'll find Rahab, who is defined as a harlot in verse 5. You'll find that David begot his son Solomon through his adulterous affair with her who had been the wife of Uriah. 
And in fact, he goes, if we know the story there, he even had Uriah killed. What's, what, is, what is he doing there? And Solomon, whose heart was drawn away into, idol, into idol, uh, idolatry by many foreign wives in verse 7. Or Rehoboam, who divided the kingdom because of pride. Or Uzziah, who went and shamed himself by going in to make sacrifice in the temple in an unlawful sacrifice. Or Ahaz, who was involved with gross idolatry in verse 9. And you read of Manasseh, who it says, as we read the accounts of his life, who was the son of Hezekiah, who was a good king, but Manasseh was born during those additional 15 years that he asked of God. And Manasseh was a wicked man. The, the, the blood flowed through the streets. Now we learn that his life was changed later on, but initially he was not. Uh, the, the, it was filled with bloodshed. And then we go on. The list, list goes on and on. Why is... Why are all of these people here? i tell you one thing. I'm so glad they're there. Because if they weren't there, I couldn't be there. I couldn't be there. Now, I may not be guilty of all these things. Some. In fact, read, read with me. In, just turn with me to um, Romans chapter 8. This is a great chapter, this whole chapter. Here he's talking about, now it's talking about then, ever since the fall of Adam and Eve, mankind has tried to make himself right by his own efforts. Here's the summary then that's talking about us in verse 3. For what the law could not do, that is keeping the law, because the law is a manifestation of the character of God. And if you believe you can keep the law in your own efforts, you're really saying you are God. For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, that was a problem, we're in sin nature. Look at those simple words there. What the the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did. How did he do that? Sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and as an offering for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh so that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh but according to the spirit i am so thankful for those who are listed in the genealogy of jesus who have ill repute and who are uh, wicked and who are sinful because that says i have hope and in fact jesus said after he was in john and uh, The gospel, as John records it, said that, uh, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld, as I quoted earlier. And then it says, all who believe, he gives the right to become the child of God. (laughs) Isn't that amazing? I've, I've said to a number of people, and I've shared those very verses, I said, so what is the promise of God in their life when they, were, when they were talking about their salvation? He says, you are now his child. I'm in the family of God. I'm in the genealogy of God by the finished work of Jesus Christ. There's another one here that is given to us in Matthew that talks about redemption, and that's verse 17. 
Now, these are, this is not an exhaustive list, but it's sufficient to show the, uh, the uh, genealogical chain there. But it, it kind of gives a summary here in verse 17. So all the generations from Abram, Abraham to David are 14 generations, from David to the deportation of Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation of Babylon to the Messiah, 14 generations. I love the story that these tell. By the way, I think that those were given in 14 generations because there was not written word or a limited amount of ability to write down and record and have it. It was easy for oral tradition to remember the 14 generations. Now, the first 14 generations, as it's listed there, speak of moving this glorious time of, the, of uh, David. The height of all the Jews were in the nation was under David. And it said it went up to this. And then the next thing you know is that they declined as they moved into idolatry and rebellion. And then they, they declined and they actually became deported. God had to send them out of the country. And then the only way they're going to find any restoration is going to be through the Messiah. It's the full picture of redemption. Man thinks he's somebody. He falls into sin. And he's in desperate need of a Savior. Again, we see the message that is the subcurrent theme that runs throughout all of Matthew is that we have a heart of a Savior who is compassionate towards us. The last one is then given to us in the name. And I realized that in verse 18 to 25, we didn't cover a lot of the traditional Christmas story that flows with who Joseph was and who Mary is. And may I say to you, with the highest level of respect of both Joseph and Mary, Joseph and Mary are no more significant than Rahab. They're just the end product of the process to birth this Savior. And those of us who want to elevate Joseph, now I grant you, he's a righteous man. He did a good thing here because Mary could have been stoned by the law, but he chooses not to do that. Now he had good encouragement with the dream from the angel. But these are, and to, to, to elevate Mary to a high position, yes, honored, yes, a virgin, yes, who would cradle the very uh, son of God in her very womb, who would birth that, who would feed that child, train up that child. That's important. No other woman in all of history has done that. But grant you this, she by her own confession said she was in need of a Savior. In her declaration of the greatness of God, she said, I need a Savior. And to elevate Mary to a position that we can pray to is wrong. It's idolatry. It's an offense to God. No, I've said that. All right. So when I skip over that, you think, well, man, how can you skip over Joseph? How can you skip over Mary? Because I don't want to give primary billing to them any more than I want to give to any one of these others because the primary person in all of this is Jesus He's the one we want to address. He's the one we want to celebrate. And so it is when the birth is to come, and it says that his name shall be Jesus. Uh, Look at this. Um, Born of the Spirit, verse 21. She will bear a son, and you you shall call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. Wow, that's kind of clear, isn't it? Jesus means salvation. 
Jehovah saves. That's what really what we mean by that. He saves. That's the theme in this. And he goes on to say that even to fulfill the prophecy here, it's given to us in verse 23. He said, it should be called Emmanuel, which means God is with us. So in the book of Matthew, we see that we have a king of kings, Lord of lords. We have a savior. It's interesting in closing here. It's interesting to me that he would quote from Isaiah here. And the part that is quoted from here, and you can read this in the seventh and eighth chapters of, and ninth chapter of uh, Isaiah. And what is he talking about here? Why does he quote from this? And here's the history behind it, uh, very quickly. Ahaz, who was the king of Israel, got disturbed by the news that there was going to be an army, the people, a couple of nations that were coming against them. In fact, it said, I thought it was kind of timely reading it in the time that we are right now. It says that the nation and the kings, their heart shook like the leaves on a tree being blown. I thought, man, if I had an illustration of that, those guys were scared. I mean, this is moving. And it says that. So then Isaiah is sent. You can read all of this. I, I'll... Uh, I'll read only one portion, but so Isaiah was sent to Ahaz to tell him, he says, look, this is not going to happen. Do you not know? Now, this is interesting. The words that is you, do you not know that God is with you? Emmanuel, God is with you. That was the message. And so Ahaz, I mean, um, uh, Isaiah was uh, then asked the king, Ask for a sign to show so that you can be at peace on this. Ask for a sign. And the king wouldn't give a sign because of his false humility. And he really should. God was offering that. God was the one who's offering. I want you guys to be assured that I'm with you. I don't want you to miss this. It's important for your nation. You're good. He wouldn't do it. He said, well, okay, I'll give you a sign. A maiden's going to give a child. And before that child can know the difference between right and wrong, those nations that are coming up against you will be set aside. That was immediately fulfilled in the birth of one of Isaiah's children, whose name is, everybody should write this down because you want to name your next child is, Mehershah Hasbiz. Really, it simply means the spoils and the booty belong to God. That's really what it means. But here, now what we have is what is often in scriptures, dual prophecy. There is an immediate fulfillment of that, but the meaning itself carries a greater meaning that has to be fulfilled in another at another time. It's like looking at mountains at a distance that look very close together, but when we actually get up there hiking over those mountains, we find that there's a great separation between those mountains. It looks close. This is the way it is. There's an immediate fulfillment with Isaiah. And then there is an ultimate fulfillment. Now, the reason I say that is because what we read in um, Isaiah, um, oh yeah, I'll get to it, chapter 9. Look, look what it says about this one that's going to be born. For, verse 6 of Isaiah, for a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor Mighty God. Mahershal Hasbaz was never called mighty God because he couldn't fulfill the credentials. 
Now, he was a sign that God was with them, but he was not God. And he goes on to say, he shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace on the, th- of on, the, on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness. From then on and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. Where was this accomplished? In the birth of Jesus Christ. He's the one that they were speaking of. Now, what is he saying to us then? He's saying exactly what we've said about this. It's a summary statement about what he's trying to tell us, what's in the book of Matthew. There is one who is coming who is ultimate God, none greater. Call him king if you wish. And in that kingship, he wants to give you one primary message, that in the state of your deepest misery and desperation, I want to be with you. Emmanuel, God with us. Mm. Aren't you excited about the study of Matthew? I can't wait. Can you? So what what should be my response to this? If I recognize he's king of kings and lord of lords, I should do one thing. I should report every day to such a one. I said, King Jesus, this is your servant. What do you want me to do? I should obey him and serve him. If I recognize that Jesus is the Messiah, the Savior, and the only way that I can ever find redemption, I should accept that great truth and embrace it for my salvation. Amen?